This week, we come to you from the offices of the Association of Professional Schools and International Affairs, or APSIA, and we're joined by Executive Director Carmen Mazera. Carmen completed her undergraduate studies at American University in the School of International Service and went on to also complete her master's degree at the same school with a focus on international organizations and sustainable development. In the course of her studies, she provided assistance uh, and analysis to NATO's Partnership for Peace in Mons, Belgium, and has also provided interviews or written articles um, for CNN, CBS, Forbes, Foreign Affairs Magazine, and the Wall Street Journal. Carmen, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. Carmen's going to walk us through a little bit today about what options students have uh, and the different career options people have in the field of public policy and international affairs. Tell us a little bit about your experience as an undergraduate. Why did you choose, walk us through what major you you chose and why you chose it. Sure. So as an undergrad and even before that, I was really interested in history. I was interested in people in other places. And I wondered why we were the way we were and why other people were the way they were and how we's and us's became they's and and how all of that came together. And so when I learned about the field of international affairs and how it combined history and culture and language and politics and debate and travel and all of those different pieces in one field, it really seemed to fit both the breadth of my interest and also what I was hoping to learn about more deeply about these bigger causes and bigger issues. So it was this nice giant umbrella to play under for a long time. And from there, I was able to study abroad and and really start to see how that unfolded in real time with real people on the ground. And it just became this this wonderful place to, to work. Tell us about your study abroad experience. What, what, where did you go, mm-hmm. and what are some of the things that you enjoyed? But in hindsight, what would you do differently if you had that time again? Oh, to go back again. Because I... I think it has sometimes the idea of I get to take some courses and travel, but there's more to cultural interchange than just traveling. Indeed. Yeah. So I studied abroad in Brussels. And I freely admit that part of the reason I chose that was because there was no language requirement mm-hmm. and my, my languages are pretty terrible. And as an American, I feel I can own that pretty honestly. Uh, so I spent six months in Brussels. And what's particularly nice about that is it's not only the home to the European Union and NATO and a number of international organizations. And while it's a sleepy government town, it's also a very international place. Belgium has three official languages. So there's all this multicultural mix going on but it's also pretty much an hour from everywhere Mm. so we would finish class on friday and get on the train and close your eyes and point at the map and off you go so you're an hour from paris an hour from london an hour from amsterdam an hour from cologne and we managed to hit most of the european continent from that central hub and so when trying to choose a study abroad destination language was part of it but accessibility to internships, accessibility to a really broad mix of people, and accessibility to so many other great experiences were really key factors. 
I think my biggest regret is not going abroad again. And and I graduated early thanks to AP credits and some other things. But mm-hmm. in terms of my time there, I think it was not being able to see much of Belgium because we were always off somewhere else. So while I have a great fondness for the city and the and the country, I, I didn't do much in there, in, in Belgium itself. I was always off somewhere else. You mentioned that you would... Uh, you would have liked to have gone back. Um, do you think just as a whole, so in the pre-law context, we do talk a lot about the benefits of getting some experience between graduating uh, from your undergraduate studies before going to law school. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of the context of law school, though, do you still think that has benefits? And, and if so, what might they be? Absolutely. I think taking a few years off for three main reasons. One really is discernment trying to get exposed to different things beyond an academic context and figure out what interests you and and maybe not to say no to things, but but to rank things more effectively. I care more about this than I do about that. I like research more than human interaction or vice versa. So discernment is probably the biggest one, and that's what I missed out on, that the chance to do that kind of self-reflection and therefore get the most out of a postgraduate degree. Some of it, I think, is about building your network for law schools, for international affairs schools, for professional job experience, being able to have stronger letters of reference, being able to talk more effectively in an interview about what you've done and tell better stories can only happen with time. I had a million internships. I was interning as an undergrad before I started class. Mm -hmm. But even with all of that, not being able to talk about it in a professional setting and say, this was my job. I wasn't an intern. I was a staff member who had a a specific portfolio of responsibilities beyond what they would give a student. There was Mm -hmm. no one to back me up. It was just me and I owned it. Again, would make me more competitive in job interviews. It gives you something more to talk about in essays and for admissions and financial aid purposes. And also building out your Rolodex. I don't know if students still have Rolodexes. (laughs) Imaginary, your LinkedIn list and your LinkedIn contacts. Yes. So just those three pieces, but discernment being the key one of knowing what it is you want to master which is half the point of all of this, is, yeah. is a key piece. And I went straight through, so I did a bachelor's master's program, uh, but was able because of my AP credits to do both of them in four years. Wow. So at 21 and a half, I had a graduate degree and there was this disconnect between my academic success and my professional capability, what I was qualified to do on paper, yeah. even despite all of my internships, because they would say master's in three to five. Well, if three to five, I would have had to have been 16. And so there was just this really, un- I was in a very weird place professionally, uh-huh. driven a lot because of um, I hadn't taken that time. I also got to the end of my grad degree and thought, oh, that's what I care about. But I was done. Yeah. So I really wish I had put a little more space in there to, to do that, that self-reflection. How did you come to a point where you realized that international affairs was something that was interesting to you? Because I feel like when you get that abroad experience, a lot of students come back and they know they want to do something international, but they're not entirely sure what that is. For better or for worse, it, in these day and age, it, it can be anything. One in five U.S. jobs is related to international trade in some way. So there's so many different aspects that a student can into which a student can channel that energy. So if a student comes back and is interested in trade or they're interested in climate or the environment or labor or law or politics, there's an international element to all of that. And so in some ways, 
the student has so many choices and in some ways it can feel really overwhelming. Mm. So when they come back with that energy, I think having again that, that chance to say, the world is broken in lots of different ways. And if I'm gonna channel my energy into fixing some some part of that to start to untie that knot, what what's the first string you pull on? And maybe it is asking, do I like people or do I like books? Yeah. Do I want to work with governments? Do I want to work with businesses? Do I want to work very interpersonally? And once you start to unpack those questions, then you can say, well, if it is more books and research, that's kind of this track. Or if it really is, the, for me, the key levers are how businesses work in the world. That's a different lever. Or it's how governments relate to each other. And I want to. I don't want to be the the government official in the room, I want to be the person standing outside saying, you government official, start to behave. <laughs> Whatever it is, th- those different layers of reflection can help you figure out what doors to close and what doors to open, and, and then you can figure out how you want to proceed. Help us understand some of the um, vocabulary. So I, it, it's very easy to conflate international affairs, international relations, public policy as being one and the same thing, but there are some distinctions. How, how can we understand those differences? With the important caveat that, that everything is different and everyone's a very special snowflake, um, some of the key generalities would be a public policy school may typically have a domestic focus, so looking at the way the United States looks at issues, the way services are delivered within a U.S. context. An international affairs program may look at how governments relate to each other, how people or products cross borders, how ideas move around the world. So by definition, it will be about how factors go beyond what we have defined as different nation states or how the world connects. Many public policy schools, including about half of our schools here in in APSIA, have both a domestic and a public policy focus or an international and domestic focus. But for the most part, you'll be able to to discern between them based on, on the nomenclature that they use. How much of a hindrance, because you made reference to um, having a second language, how much of a, uh, how important is it? Because uh, I, I want, want students to understand that you, you know, whether or not you have a second language, this might be, a, this still might be an option for you. There's not necessarily a requirement. It's not. It's certainly a helpful tool in your toolbox, and there's lots of ways to show respect and cultural communication without being fluent, certainly, or even having a strength in a particular language. It also really depends on a career. If you want to go live abroad and work in a particular context, having that language is going to definitely help you get in the door. But if you don't have it yet, once you're in the door, you, you need to use it to function if you want to be a, an intelligence analyst and look at what's going on in the Middle East, you, it's very difficult to do your job if you're trying to do it all in English through someone else's translation. But for international business, typically the language is English. Mm. For a lot of nonprofit work, typically the language is English. Government interrelations, typically the language is English. If you had to pick a second one, there are five major UN languages, one of which is English. But the other four are based primarily on the number of people within the world who speak those languages. So it's straight population. Mm-hmm. So if you needed to focus, one of those four may be a great alternative because you just know you're playing the odds. And the odds are in your favor that there's someone who speaks Chinese, Russian, Arabic, or French in the world. And, and so that's those are good targets. In the U.S. also, obviously, Spanish is, is a rising language to use just for basic functionality and, and getting through the day. But... 
there's lots of international opportunities for those of us who do not yet have the command of a second language. And would you say proficiency is more important than um, having elementary knowledge of several languages? No, I, no. I think being able to function a little bit is better than than stri- waiting to, to until you feel perfectly proficient mm-hmm. because for a lot of us that that's never going to happen and so it's better to have a little bit and be able to function a little bit than to wait for this magic brass ring of of full proficiency yeah okay tell us a little bit about the job market is it just that i mean there are jobs outside of the government sector but what kind of jobs um what kind of fields do people with a master's in international affairs go into more than just the industries. What are some of the actual professions or jobs that they do? Sure. So within the many different buckets of professional life, in business, you may see folks who are trade specialists who combine economics with an understanding of international affairs to help companies sell their products more effectively overseas or to attract non-U.S. investment into their American town. To work in education, you may work on study abroad opportunities, so helping students facilitate all of those great experiences like what I had, or bringing international students into the United States and helping them acculturate. Mm -hmm. In science and technology, maybe you're combining computer science and international affairs to do cyber threat analysis, or to even I have colleagues who work on the standards, so to make sure that your internet connection and my internet connection actually connect to each other. Well, what are the standards governing privacy and data laws? And if you're a multinational company like Google or Facebook, you don't want a different standard in Australia than in the U.S., than in Namibia, than in, than in, than in. So making sure that these things generally line up. All of those different pieces maybe have, maybe have a special sector combined with international affairs to help you be really competitive. One of the best, two great examples that I usually use are a student may be interested in, in dance or the arts mm-hmm. and international affairs. That's, that's a whole field, whether it's bringing the Chinese dance troupe through to Washington, D.C. to the Kennedy Center, or it's bringing American artists overseas as a cultural diplomacy tool. You can combine an interest in two things that don't seem like they would go together. And have a, there's a lot of international organizations that are working on that kind of cultural exchange and cultural information sharing. So does that mean then someone who might be studying history or biology might be getting towards the end of their undergraduate studies and realize this is a field they want to pursue? Having not majored in international affairs doesn't in any way close that door. Absolutely not. I actually think it's, it enriches the experience. Some of my classmates were studying anthropology, they were studying history or bio or ag, and all of those things just make the classroom discussion richer and, and more effective because if we all studied the same thing, we'd all have the same point of view, and that's not only not helpful for education, but it's just really boring. Yeah. <laughs> so it, I think it's wonderful to have people who, who came from different tracks. When we talk about law schools, we talk about the importance of making sure that the school you attend has a decent bar passage rate, uh, the importance of having a reasonably good chance of securing a a full-time job as an attorney when you graduate and cost. And that information is all freely available. Schools have to report it. What about these international affairs uh, master's programs? Are students able to go and look at schools and, and identify which ones are going to give them are more likely to provide them with the kinds of outcomes that they want. All schools should share general numbers about outcomes, and students should 
definitely press on that point when they talk to admission staff and say, this is the broad field that I'm interested in. What is the track from your school into that sector? There isn't quite the same gatekeeper system or straight line that you may see in law schools because there isn't one standard test that everybody has to pass or one standard matching system where certain associates get tracked in. And particularly that's because the field is so broad. So students should have should come with some sense of the direction they want to go and then press on those numbers. Surely you're not the only student who ever wanted to go work for Google with an international affairs degree. So ask, what kind of internships do students get? What kind of job placements? Do they stay in this particular city or area? Do they go somewhere else? If so, do you have a program in that other place so I can start to get my feet in the door? All of those different components are, are things our schools are used to answering. And even on the most basic level, that should be freely available on their website. I think it's pretty fair to say, too, that the kinds of skills that requires are the exact kind of skills you're going to be using in a professional setting, doing research, building networks, reaching out to people. Um, so you're not doing yourself any harm by, by undertaking that work. This is actually a safe place to practice those skills because there's, there's, your information is on the line, but people really want to help you and connect with you that they may be less inclined when you're a professional. Yeah, it's different when the first time you're reaching out to somebody is in a job interview. Yes. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about the application process. Are people required to take the GRE or does that vary from one school to another? To, to another? Is there a, a standard time frame that schools kind of generally open up their application window? Most schools will have the window open between about October and January each year. And it's going to vary depending on the school. It's going to vary depending on whether you need financial aid, which I assume most students want to be conscious <laughs> of that financial aid deadline. It is important. Yes. Uh, and so keeping track of the different schools, but that's generally the window. Most schools are going to ask for a CV or a resume, which are two different things. So students should definitely know which one is asked, uh -huh. is requested. They're pretty much going to ask for some kind of essay, whether it's an academic statement on a topic or a personal statement or both. Most schools are going to ask for letters of recommendation. Some are going to specify academic versus professional. Some don't care. They just want good people who can tell good stories about that student, real stories about that mm -hmm. student. Some of them are going to ask for the GREs. Some of them you'll see this degree program requires the GRE. That one doesn't. So the key thing for their for students is to read carefully and to follow directions. You'd be amazed at how many of, actually probably you wouldn't be amazed, but <laughs> there's a lot of students who, who can't seem to handle, please send three letters of recommendation and they send two or they send five. This is your first test as to whether you can handle basic direction following. And if you can't yeah. do that, it's it's hard for a school to recognize that you're going to thrive in a master's level environment if you can't count to three. And, so. and in some cultures, too, are far more rigorous on rules yes. and expectations. So if you're going to go into that field, there has to be that awareness that, you know, the rules and the criteria yes, matter. Absolutely. And the other piece that a lot of schools are going to ask for are transcripts. And that's going to be from every institution that you attended. So if, you, if a student like me comes in with college credit out of high school or something like that, you're going to need to reach back and ask for those. Mm -hmm. But all of those different pieces are going to come together to paint a picture of a candidate far beyond just what the numbers say, what your GPA was or what your GREs are. They're really going to want to understand your aptitude for study. How, how are you setting yourself up for success in this academic program? 
They're going to want to understand your aptitude for professional success. Is this a springboard into some nifty future version of yourself that you envision? And then, as we talked about earlier, how are you going to set others up for academic and professional success? So that's where coming from a different background, having a different major, having different experiences helps you enrich your ability to tell the story and say, I can really contribute something to the classroom because I was a combat vet in Afghanistan. So when we're talking about Afghanistan, I've been there and I've had a really different lens than someone who was a Peace Corps volunteer or something like that. So just, I guess, just so we can recap the important points, um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what major you study as an undergraduate. This is still an option for you. Be thinking about how to tie your undergraduate majors to an area of international affairs that you might be interested in. Obviously, think ahead, do those res- do the research on the kind of school that you think would be a good fit and gives you the kind of outcomes that you want. Uh, obviously, experience is important during the summers as an undergraduate but what kind of experience would you encourage students to look at after they finish uh, their undergraduate studies does it matter in some ways yes and in some ways no i think one of the great examples that i often give is if two students go off and one goes to wall street and the other one works at starbucks both students have very different experiences and and a lot of people's impulse is to say well the Starbucks experience doesn't count and the Wall Street one does Mm. but if a student is working at Starbucks as a barista and can talk about intercultural relations or working with customers and how they've had this experience dealing with people from different places and different expectations then it's relevant if they can say I'm really interested in supply chains or child labor or fair trade or the impact of plastics on the ocean because I watched all of the Mm. straws pile up in the trash can. It's relevant. Whereas the the Wall Street student is interested in how plastics pile up in the ocean, two years on Wall Street may not be relevant at all. So in some ways you can, all of those are formative experiences and can shape the story that you tell and the person you want to be after your professional degree based on on who you are and and who you are now and who you want to be. So in a lot of ways, lots of different things count. Some traditional routes, obviously, Peace Corps, Teach for America, AmeriCorps, a few years working at a nonprofit or a think tank or a, and this is a very DC experience, but, or a a private company, all of that, again, can be part of the discernment process and, and shape how you envision what happens the day after graduation from your master's degree. Can you talk to us a little bit about how geography plays into career outcomes? Because in the context of law schools, we frequently, isn't, it, it's not the only reason to choose a law school, but it, it helps in terms of jobs to choose a school that's in the jurisdiction that you want to practice. If you want to be in D.C., you want to be in New York um, or Chicago, how important is it that you go to a school in that area? Or is it just not really a factor? I think it's important for if you really want to be in Washington or Chicago or New York or Geneva or Tokyo or wherever, to make sure that program has some access to that market, but it doesn't necessarily need to be based in that specific place. So a lot of our schools, maybe in Texas or in California, have a semester program in Washington mm. or have a lot of deep relationships so their students can come and study in Washington for a, sum- for a summer or intern here. So there is that that bit of opportunity for you to see how a city works, see how it feels, see if that, oh, I love Paris. 
as a tourist, maybe not to live here, to yeah. get to get that real exposure to a place without having to live there for two solid years. And the same is true for, I think geography is a factor, but it's not necessarily an employment factor. Mm, okay. If you hate a big city, don't go live in New York. <laughs> New York is a, <laughs> if you love a big city, maybe some rural parts of Texas are not for you. It, it really, you need to have that be a factor because it is a quality of life factor. And you should use it as an employment tool, but it, it can't be the only discernment point, I would say. So if, if a student did get a very attractive scholarship offer at a school that perhaps wasn't in D.C. and that's where they ultimately wanted to be, they can still take advantage of that really good offer, get a great education, max out the opportunities to spend time in, for example, D.C., and still have a really good career prospect when they graduate. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and again, those are common questions that schools are used to answering. So ask. And if they say, oh, no, no one's ever gone to Washington, then maybe the, the difference between price and value is important. But if they have a steady pipeline, then they should go with what makes the most sense overall. We talk about the importance of reading in preparing for law school in terms of the complexity of the stuff you're reading and the volume. And I think to get better at reading, you just have to read that kind of stuff. There's no shortcut. There's no way around it. What would you recommend students who might be interested in international affairs are reading or be reading outside of the classroom? Is there some periodicals that you would recommend? Uh, maybe some websites or, or sophisticated blogs that you might suggest students check out? Sure. And I'm smiling because we talk a lot about the importance of writing and, and public speaking. So if it's about the output, all the stuff you know in your head and how it comes out, not necessarily what goes in. Yeah. No, no, that's, and that's, that's absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> but in terms of what students should be processing, there's, I'd say, several major periodicals. So Foreign Affairs, The Economist, Foreign Policy, to, to a slightly different extent, are, are places where student people in the know are going to turn to you for information. So if you're able to say, I saw this article in Foreign Affairs or the other day when I was reading The Economist or The Financial Times, it, it shows that you are paying attention to the space. And in terms of just basic knowledge, there are key texts going way back that form the tenets of, of international affairs. So being able to use the, the lingua franca, being able to use the terms of art are important. But the space is changing really fast. And so more modern periodicals, I think some of the blogs, War on the Rocks is a good one that a lot of our faculty publish in. There's a monkey cage blog through the Washington Post. <laughs> Silly name, but but good pieces that are very insidery. Some of it's more, more government focused, more DC focused. But there's actually lots of opportunities for students to publish as well. So there's a group that we work with called Sigma Iota Rho, which is the National International Relations Honor Society mm -hmm. that often invites student publications. So getting students to contribute their own work. The uh, Roosevelt Scholars, I think, has an open, con uh, open opportunity. Young Professionals in Foreign Policy will publish blogs. So it's, again, it's a student chance for students to publish their own work and see what others are reading and writing that might be a little more current than some of the sort of Sun Tzu and Clausewitz and, and ye old the old dead men thinking about international affairs kind yeah. of work. Well, I think, too, the perception of publication is that it's only a thing for graduate students and, and uh, professors, but there are a lot of opportunities for undergraduates to, to get that kind of experience, and that's hugely beneficial on an application, right? Absolutely. And it's also for jobs as well as for graduate school. 
people want to know that you can take all of the stuff in your head and make a cogent argument out of it that's less than five million pages. Can, can you give me three paragraphs to tell me what you know, what you think about what you know, and what we should do about what you know, and, and move on from there? Fantastic. Well, I guess the last question I wanted to, um, to put to you was about a thing called the Pickering Fellowship, which is a, a fantastic program that I don't think a lot of students really know about. Could you walk us through what it is and, and why it's something that students interested in this field should be thinking about? Sure. So Pickering, and it has a sister program called the Wrangell Fellowship and a sister program called the Payne Fellowship. And each of these three combine funding for graduate study, and in some cases for undergraduate, the last two years of your undergraduate degree, with a track into either the Foreign Service, the U.S. Foreign Service that's part of the State Department, in the case of Pickering and Wrangell, or the U.S. Agency for International Development, in the case of the Payne Fellowship. And students apply and have to promise that when they graduate, they will spend at least seven years working for the government as a Foreign Service Officer or a USAID diplomat. And that can be a hard promise for students to make because seven years feels really far away. But it will cover, as I said, two years of undergrad in some cases and your two years of graduate study in, in, other case, in, in addition to those two years. So financially, it's a wonderful boon for students who, who qualify. And then because there is the promise of the job, presuming you pass the security clearance and, and some of the other tests, it's a wonderful way to, to really secure your future. The Wrangell Fellowship also combines time on Capitol Hill, interning in a, in a congressional office. It's named for Congressman Charlie Wrangell, so that was a very important interrelationship for him. But the students that we have encountered in about 85% of Pickerings and Wrangells go through APSIA schools. They're just tremendous. They're ambitious and they're bright and often they are multilingual. That really helps you stand out. But it's this way to really, if you know that's the way you want to go, it's a great way to secure some of those touch points pay for graduate school and have a job locked in for get at least guaranteed experience yes yeah. and and you spend time at an embassy so you get important things like a security clearance and exposure to what that life really is like and a chance to to discern okay well it's seven years in one day am i am i staying am i going how, how is this going to work out for me i'm sure that opens up opportunities to move to other areas within international affairs once you've had some time at the state department that's a, a common example, that's yeah. a common platform there's a lot of folks who who spend X number of years really seeing the world and seeing diplomatic life, seeing how the sausage of government gets made. <laughs> and then they translate that into the private sector or the nonprofit sector. Wonderful. I lied. I did have one more question. Yeah. For a lot of our students, they mightn't have had an opportunity to get to DC. Uh, and we have a, uh, a Baylor in DC program. But from someone who lives here, what are some of the things that you love about living in DC? Uh, what are some things that attract people to this city? And what are some differences to other places that you've lived? Sure. I will. One, one important beginning is that there's a lot of opportunity locally. There's a lot of opportunity in Texas to, to do these kinds of issues. But for those who are attracted to, to the, the Beltway, I think what I've loved about the 20 years I've spent in D.C. is how international it is and how many different kinds of people from so many life experiences there are to, to challenge you and your vision of the world. There's a lot of a lot of opportunity. But I will say DC is a very specific kind of place. It's a very hierarchical place. 
but it's a very accessible place. It's people here know that they came from somewhere and are on a professional journey. And so they like to reach back and talk to students. They like to provide opportunities. They like to open doors. So it's the kind of place where you can cold call someone very senior and say, I'm a student and I think you're awesome. Can I just let you talk about yourself for an hour? And people will love to do It's not a very humble place, Washington. <laughs> but people will, will tell you their story and they will, they will share their networks and they will share their contacts with you because someone did that for them. It's, it's a great place to be broke. I will, I will say there's lots of free <laughs> cultural events. The, you can usually eat for free three meals a day if you work the think tank circuit just yes. right and, and go to a breakfast and then a lunch meeting and then a dinner and a happy hour. So there's, it's a very young place, so it's a great place to be in your 20s and, and have the chance to be broke and go take advantage of all of these different kinds of things. It's easy to get around. So compared to giant Texas where everything feels really far away, Washington's only a few miles across and up and down. And, and you've got so, the metro. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a really accessible place. I think D.C. is also a very divided place. You, the farther north and the farther west you go, the more money you have, the more racial disparity, the, the more racial inequity, the more stratified the city becomes. So it's also a challenging place in that sense because D.C. doesn't have voting rights. I, I'm a full-blown citizen in the United States, but I can't, don't have a congressman, don't have a senator. So there, there's also this laboratory aspect of what it really means to be the seat of government without having anyone in that government who fights for you. And so it's yeah. it's an interesting, challenging place like that. Wonderful. Well, Carmen, thank you so much for your time. If you've got any further questions about careers in international affairs, do reach out to us at prelaw at bailout.edu, or you can also check out the APSIA website. APSIA.org. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank, thank you. you.